An Aeroflot Nord 737-500 is on approach to the Perm International Airport in Russia when something goes terribly wrong. What caused this flight to crash so close to their final destination? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. Welcome back to the actual show that is our podcast. <laughs> we currently have Taco Bell, and I have written a novel. So. I have not today. We need, we have some patrons we need to thank. Thank you to Scott. You upgraded. Yes, thank you. Thank you. We appreciate that. Bless your face. Stay tuned till the end. We'll talk a little bit about the Zoom calls and how they work, because if you've never done them before. We're a disaster. Yeah. And Taras. Taras? Who just joined. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate you. That was it, right? Yes. Thank you to the Canadian. The Canadian. Also, stories. Make sure you're submitting those. I don't think we have any stories yet for this. That's a lie. David sent one. Oh, you're Did right. He? But we, then we only have one. So remember, this will, f- like, it'll just keep going till we get enough. Hey, Spock. So. Step it up. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> Spock is probably you, also a very busy person. Yeah. Okay, listen. And that's okay. The <laughs> fact that he's able to send us as much as he is is kind of amazing. So. I'm impressed. Also, if you've never told us a story before, consider Do it. doing it. I mean, any story. It doesn't have to be around the topic of the month, which was back right. to school this month. But go. Just we've had a lot of people just tell us stories. And we appreciate it. Just so. stories. We like stories. So we've go had ahead drowning and do that. stories. The drowning stories were interesting. They were good. Yes. Appreciated. <clears throat> Vanessa. Pretty sure she's the one who sent those. Oh, and we're sending everything out. So we got everything literally packaged on the table in front of us right now. So if you became a patron within the last couple of months, I would say from June to now, we are sending out your stuff soon. And a regular schedule of things to be sent will be happening soon as well now that we are now that we procuring have some help. Someone to do that for us. <laughs> yes, now that we're procuring some help. So. Speaking of. Also, if you have any questions about that, like if you haven't gotten merch and you're like, mm, I should have gotten some. Right. But I don't have any. This also applies free- to people if you signed up for Patreon and then unsigned up for Patreon, you yeah. still are owed things, which we... Or it's all accounted for still, so these things are still happening. Yeah, but if you have any questions about that or whatever, you feel free to email us or message us on any of the social platforms. Yeah. We'll get back to you. I mean, usually it's just like we literally don't have the time to do it. Yeah. <laughs> we don't, don't do it. Right now, life has been chaos, but things will get better. Yeah. So. chaos. Me too. I think that's it for housekeeping. Yep. It's only been a couple of days since we recorded last, actually, so there hasn't been much happening between then and now. Yeah. We bought a printer. Yay! It was important. That that's The podcast bought a printer. The, yes, because... It's a nice printer. It actually is. The other one we're going to smash with the slip. <laughs> <laughs> I might end up taking it to work. Uh, if you can get it hate, to work. I hate that thing. It's fine. <laughs> I'll use it anyways. I don't print much at work, but I just have it there for, like, the sake of, like, the one time they're like, Hey, can you print this for me today? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, All well, right. with that note of enthusiasm... What are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering Aeroflot Nord Flight 821. Thank you to our patron Mandy for recommending this. We had to move some stuff around. 
because sometimes this happens, this has happened a lot recently where we look into those crashes we're going to do and we're like, we don't have time to do that today. Well, one of two things happened here <laughs> because one, we had this one and it was like, oh my God, okay, I'm going to need a lot longer to look at this one because there's a lot. So there's next that. episode's going to be fun. Not that this one wasn't a lot, but also we were going to do the next one in line instead. In that one, we found out is no report and too short. So we will probably make that one a mini-sode. Yes. So these are the kinds of things that happen regularly. A lot of you, I feel like, also forget that you've recommended stuff, and then you're yep. like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I did that. Sometimes I wonder if people, like, recommend stuff, and then we finally get around to it, and they might not even listen anymore. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> but that's okay. We have a lot of listeners, and actually we are getting more and more all the time. I was just looking at our listenership numbers earlier, and it I was... spiked, yeah. I was actually amazed. Things have been... Doing a lot well. lately. Um, yeah, I have a not small novel for this episode. So I do not. My part is very short. Miranda is going to get increasingly upset. That's fair. So you guys can enjoy my rage. There are quite a few things along the way that will make you upset, but I won't get to any of those. Uh-uh. I will just make you very confused. Okay, cool. The phrase, it gets worse. Will be used a lot. I don't put it in my script. But I'm sure we'll use it a lot. It this entire episode can just be tagged with it gets worse. Yep. This will be it gets worse. The episode. (laughs) Sorry, that's funny. (laughs) (laughs) This accident occurred on September 14th of 2008. This is a Boeing 737-500 with the town number Victor Papa dash Bravo Kilo Oscar. This was a registration from Bermuda. Which is technically a United br- Kingdom. Yeah, a UK registration on an Aeroflot aircraft because they still do this, by the way. <laughs> it's like when cruise ships exactly. are registered. Like a lot of US cruise ships are, are registered in the Bahamas. Yeah. Yep. So it has a lot to do with like not paying taxes. There's a few different things that it matters for. Well, and this is a leased aircraft. And Russia still does this, where they lease aircraft from Bermuda, and then they haven't been paying on that lease, so... They finally started to register them in in Russia, but the problem with that is that the aircraft is still leased. So basically, they've... Stolen. They found a way to steal the aircraft. So that's current events. Yep. (laughs) We're going to leave the rest of that be, because we're not going to get into everything that's going on there. Just another reason not to like Russia. This is the past. You're not going to like Russia today either. Oh, good. I usually don't when it comes up on this. Nope, you're not going to like 2008 Russia. (laughs) We don't talk about the 737-500 very often, but the 737-500 was one of the smallest versions of the 737, with, I think it was just barely 100 seats. I think it might not even have been 100 seats. It was the shortest version of the classic 737, not the original, the classic series. Okay. Have we covered another 737-500? I feel like we have. But I don't know which one. Do I remember? No. Guys, don't have this a clue. is episode 149. This one, is 150. 150. We are 150 episodes in. Holy crap. That's a lot of episodes. We are scheduled to cover one in February. Excellent. So the answer is no. <laughs> we haven't covered it before. <laughs> well, this is the shortest version of the classics, which is actually very similar in size to the 737-200, so, which is also very short. The only thing shorter than that is the 737-100, which was the shortest version of the 737. That's a thing. That's a thing. This is a flight from Moscow's Sheremetyevo Airport to Perm, 
also in Russia. I had never heard of Perm before this. Yep, that's just a city. I mean, we don't live in Russia, so. Right. This is, Perm is not quite center of Russia, but more so than Moscow. Like, it's very. Moscow's like on the edge. It's, well, not quite, but it's more toward the western end of Russia. And Moscow being over there is the whole reason they were able to make part of Russia, part of the European continent, even though it's not. Yeah. (laughs) Politics. So this is more toward the center of Russia. We'll get there, but it's not terribly far away. I know. No, I said they don't. Oh, yeah. Foreshadowing. I mean, they do, but they don't. They don't. Captain for this flight was Rodion Medvedev. He was 34 years old at the time. He had over 3,900 hours total, of which 1,190 hours were on the 737. That is not much. I mean, the hours on the 737, okay. His hours total, still not very much. None of this is an unacceptable number, though. I mean... The first officer was Rustem Alaberdin. He was 43, 43 years old. He had 8,900 hours total. Wow. Of which 236 were on the 737. So, far fewer hours on the 737, hence he wasn't captain. But he had way more hours total. He was also older. older. So, made sense. Mm-hmm. This flight was essentially a red-eye type flight, even though I don't count this as a red-eye. I just call it brutal. Because it leaves Moscow in the middle of the night, arriving into Perm early in the morning. There were 82 passengers and 6 crew that boarded the flight in Moscow. Flight crew completed their standard pre-flight briefing, and the aircraft took off from Moscow at 1.13 a.m. local time. Ew. The flight was scheduled to take about 2 hours and would cross 2 time zones, which is the only reason that this flight can possibly be a red-eye for a 2-hour flight. Because it crosses 2 time zones. So that means that they'll actually arrive there four hours after takeoff, technically. So they arrive at five. The takeoff and climb out were carried out normally. The aircraft reached its cruising altitude of flight level 290, or 29,000 feet. Cruise flight was normal at 4.40 a.m. local time in Perm. So now we're all the way over in Perm, which is about one and a half hours into the flight. The flight began its descent. The air traffic controller instructed the flight to expect an ILS for runway 21 at Perm. The instructions included flying via the initial approach fix, which was also the outer marker. The crew were then to overfly the airport before maneuvering into place for the ILS, which I found confusing because they don't depict that in the episode, nor could I find a map of this, but it says they overfly the runway before backtracking, basically, for the ILS. Yeah. That is not what the approach charts look like, but okay. Correct. This is why I'm a little bit confused, and I'm not entirely sure if that's what they actually did. That is not what they did. Well, yeah. (laughs) But anyways, weather at the airport was overcast with light rain, but good visibility of 10 kilometers, though it was still in the dark hours of night. Morning, technically, but it was dark. It was dark. As the airplane was turning right onto final... So they've done this whole maneuver, now they're okay. on final, turning final. The autopilot and the autothrottle disconnected at separate times. The airplane began climbing slightly. A short time later, the aircraft was flying too high and to the left of the straight-in ILS approach, or instrument landing system approach, flying a path at an angle away from the approach. So they are to the left of the straight-in, and they're flying away. And climbing. And climbing. 
The tower controller noticed this and gave the flight instructions to to make a right turn of three to 360 or 360 degrees and begin the ILS approach all over again from the beginning. And to descend. Yes, and to descend. The flight crew requested to continue their current pr- approach, however, which the air traffic controller denied. They had a back and forth on this. He requested again that they restart the ILS approach. The flight crew acknowledged the instructions to restart this time around. That said, the airplane never began a right turn like they were supposed to. Instead, the left that they had already made was now turning into a much greater left turn. The airplane suddenly began rapidly banking further to the left until it completed an entire barrel roll and was then pointed nearly straight down toward the ground. Wait, what? (laughs) Hold on. Hold on. What? All of this is basically from the perspective of the air traffic controller, by the way. So we'll get into why all this is happening later. What are they doing? Yeah. That's what everybody else wants to know when we get... Can we continue our approach? What f- approach? You're, you're going the wrong way and you're climbing. That's not an approach Approach to the sky? We'll get to that, but there's a reason that they said that. Oh, God. And it is going to make you very mad. 5.10 a.m., the airplane struck the ground hard onto and adjacent to the tracks of the Trans-Siberian Railroad. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, 12.4 kilometers from the airport. The aircraft disintegrated on impact, which caused a fireball. As it would. They had a lot of fuel on board still, actually. Eight tons. Yep. That's a lot of fuel. That's enough. Yep. Much of the wreckage burned immediately after the crash. The fireball could be seen by the tower controller who initiated the emergency response. Good job. Yep. Emergency crews arrived on site and began to put out the fire, but it was quickly apparent that the aircraft struck the ground with so much force that there could be no survivors. Oh, well. The aircraft wreckage pieces were all generally very small. I mean... Confetti. There's confetti. a picture on our website. Yeah. Miranda's already seen it. I yep. have. It's... There's nothing left. An example of this was the control columns, which were broken into many pieces, and there was like... This was like the biggest piece of the control column. It's like four yeah. inches in length. Yeah. That's not good. All 88 on board perished in the crash, unfortunately. It did damage the railroad as well. It took them some time to get the Trans-Siberian Railroad running again. It's very unfortunate that they hit the railroad that goes across that continent. Yep. It damaged the wires that run beside it. It damaged the tracks. Mostly it struck a field, though, so it didn't do anything to anybody on the ground. Well, that's good. Which is pretty miraculous, but... Okay, well... Well, short. That was short, sweet, kind of to the point, except that it wasn't. And long. <laughs> now let's get into what happened. Strap in. This investigation was performed by the Interstate Aviation Committee, or the IAC. We have talked about them before. And they actually published this in English, thank God. Wow. With the assistance of everyone and their mother. Yep. By that, I mean the NTSB, the FAA, Boeing, GE, the BEA, SNECMA, AAIB, Bermuda, Ministry of Transportation Tourism, experts from the Russian CAA, FTOA, FANA, Meteorological Agency, as well as pilots from the Gromov Flight Research Institute, the State Research Institute of Civil Aviation, Aeroflot Nord, Transaero, and KDAVIA Airlines. Wow. it's a lot of people. It is. This report and... Investigation was completed in like eight months. So, and wow. it, when you have that many people working it, yep. Both black boxes were recovered. Miraculous. I'm surprised they weren't smashed into a billion pieces. Uh, they kind of were. So, Almost. well, 
They needed special readout devices, so they were sent to the BEA in France for extraction. And we will come back to them later, don't you worry. From the wreckage and surrounding areas, investigators were able to make some pretty immediate conclusions. Because all the wreckage was confined to one area, it was intact on impact and there was no in-flight breakup. Because the surrounding trees that were impacted first weren't burned, there was not an in-flight fire, and all, all fire was post-impact fueled by the eight tons of jet fuel that was still on board. Because the plane was freaking decimated, it impacted at a very high speed. Mm. Yes, thank you. Yes. The angle of the trees that were damaged relative to the impact itself showed that the flight did not plummet to the ground vertically, but rather at an angle. And that's all I have now for wreckage because investigators had to focus on just taking pictures and moving the wreckage. The railway had to get back up and running since it is a vital part of their economic system. Yes. Yep. In the meantime, investigators interviewed the air traffic controller and reviewed the radar data for the accident flight. The controller revealed that the crew missed their turn for their approach and they were climbing. Yes. For some reason. What? He asked them to turn right, descend, and redo their approach. But they asked if they could continue anyway, to which he was like, uh... No. <laughs> right. <laughs> no. You're not... There's... You're not, not gonna get to the airport doing what you're doing currently. No. He had to give them instructions three times. Yep. Before he finally asked if they were okay, to which they said they were and would do as asked. But they didn't. That's ominous. Was something wrong with the plane? Given the aircraft type and recent events related to that aircraft type, investigators wanted the maintenance records pretty immediately. The impact was not dissimilar from the crashes we covered in episodes 13, 14, and 15, the rudder hardovers. Mm. This was an aircraft that would have been equipped with the same type yep. of rudder. The dissolution of the Soviet Union was somewhat recent, and parts and skilled maintenance crews were in short supply. If the new rudder power control unit had not been implemented, there was a good chance that the same thing happened here, and the crew may have lost control. But, lo and behold, the new PCU was installed in 2005. Oh, well, that's not it. Nope. Investigators reviewed the recent maintenance records for any immediate recent concerns. The most recent line maintenance was done the day before, on the 13th, at Sheremetyevo, And it was revealed that two things were inoperative, or inop, upon takeoff. The autothrottle... And the TCAS. These items were not on the minimum equipment list or MEL, so it was acceptable to fly without them. I feel like the TCAS should be. Should be. We had this discussion, but the reality is you still can't rely on TCAS to make decisions for you. It is supposed to be a very important safety feature, but not all aircraft have it anyway. It's also still an option for the aircraft, but it is highly recommended really depends on where the aircraft is being used. But it really isn't the f final be-all, end-all in this case, like a lot of other systems are, because it's still up to the pilot to see and avoid. And then the autothrottle, I thought you said in the story that the autothrottle was disengaged with the autopilot. Good question. We will get there. Let me continue. Okay. So, not so worried about the TCAS, but let's talk about the autothrottle. Why was it inoperative? Well, on the 12th, you know the day before. It kept disengaging during flight 824. Why did it keep disengaging? Going all the way back to August 8th, taking it back, sorry, August 6th, it was found that the right engine N1 and therefore thrust was significantly higher than the left engine by up to 20% at times. That's a lot. 
And they didn't think that they should figure out why that was happening? Despite numerous records of this in the technical log, the defect was not troubleshot by maintenance staff either, by relative troubleshooting procedures, or by looking at the FDR data, which they were at liberty to do. While the maintenance was deferred, flight crews had to fly with an asymmetric power setting, boosting the left engine power to compensate for the deficiency. The fact that this went on for so long, along with so many other deferred items throughout the whole 737 fleet, shows that there was a low level of 737 maintenance in the airline and a low level of maintenance staff training. This was in large part because Aeroflot Nord was rapidly expanding their 737 fleet, leasing them as fast as they could to keep up with the increasing market. What do you think that means for the flight crews? Let's go there. Uh-oh. Investigators took a hard look at the training records for the flight crew. The reports from the air traffic controller disturbed them, as well as the already found maintenance records. But first, to determine the adequacy of the individual training, you have to look at what they were training on. Investigators analyzed the flight crew training manual that was developed by the airline and approved by the Russian Aviation Authority and found it to have serious deviations from the Civil Aviation Flight Operations Manual, the previous flight crew training manual, and the Flight Operations Management Manual for Civil Aviation. That's not a small number of issues. These deviations were in flight crew training, crew formation, and documentation. These findings were confirmed based on inspections by the Federal Transport Oversight Agency and the Civil Aviation Authority. So the training is on shaky foundations at best. And they still allowed them to fly? Yeah, it gets worse. Here's the first one. The captain took transition training on the Boeing 737 at the Flight Training International Center in... Denver, Colorado. Yeah, I was going to say Colorado. <laughs> yep. At what used to be Stapleton Airport. This training was in August and September of 2006, long after Stapleton Airport was no longer a thing, but there's still training centers there. And there was still quite a few remnants from the airport at the time. Um, and at currently today, this center is closed, just to be clear. This center was not approved by Russian aviation authorities. So, beep, beep. Red flag. The program was also designed for co-pilots. Not captains. So why is he even doing it? Great Another question. red flag. The captain's file also did not contain all of the training documentation, so investigators could not do a full assessment of his progress or his instructor's remarks, because, you know, they weren't in the file. Let's continue. The captain had previously flown an Antonov-2 in college and advanced to the Tupolev-134 as a co-pilot for 2,700 hours. The Tupolev-134 has two tail-mounted engines, meaning that up to his 737 training, the captain did not have any experience with spaced-apart wing-mounted engines. This is worth noting, because flying spaced-apart engines on asymmetric thrust, like the flight crew would have had to do, is harder than if they were tail-mounted. To best explain this, imagine you're tightening a screw with an Allen wrench. You know, the, the L-shaped thing. Mm -hmm. Is it easier to twist the screw when you're holding the short arm or the long arm? The long arm. Correct. This is because the moment arm is longer. It doesn't take as much force to twist. Same goes for planes. Because the engines are spaced further apart, asymmetric thrust makes it easier for the plane to yaw than if they were closer spaced tail-mounted engines. Okay. Furthermore, increased thrust on one wing also means increased lift. So it wasn't just a yaw they had to counter, it was also a bank. Yes. The crew would have had to input a little bit of both to counter the inherent thrust asymmetry. The captain also had to adjust from having a four-person crew on the Tupolev with an engineer and navigator down to a two-person crew with a flight management system and a glass cockpit. Okay, so 
They're putting him on this aircraft. First of all, he shouldn't even be a captain on this aircraft. Correct. Because he doesn't have, like, any training on this kind of aircraft. But not only that, you're taking him away from a thing he knows where he has two other people to rely on for information and putting it, just nixing those people and having one other person. Also correct. It gets worse. Also doesn't have a lot of hours on the 737. It gets worse. There's number two. It does. As if that wasn't enough. The captain's grasp of the English language was found to be lacking, which is extremely problematic. They weren't even sure how much of the training he understood. His 737 training was in English. The manuals are in English. The computers and systems are in English. It's gone great. So... Do you explain why that is? No. Do you? Yes, because it's in the findings. Because in Russia, they were only required to understand the English language to fly internationally. Oh my god. So fly an aircraft that's built in the United States. Yeah, that's That's a great idea. And then put a captain in who also doesn't know what the f*** he's doing. That's a great idea. You think you're mad yet? It gets worse. It really does. Quote, Pilot in command had no experience as captain, and he did not pass the captain training courses. Then why is he a captain? Although he transitioned from a Tupolev 134 with four crew members, he did not pass CRM training. So why is he even flying? End quote. It gets worse. As if that wasn't enough. Immediately after his 737 training, he flew the Tupolev 134 again for four months before going back to the 737 without a refresher course. Let's just try this again without giving you any more help. I'm not even sure if it would have been any different since he can't even understand English. Oh, it gets worse. Let's look at the first officer. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm laughing out of nervousness. It, It really does get worse. So the first officer trained on the 737 at the Flight Training Center of St. Petersburg State University of Civil Aviation in December of 07 through January of 08. Most of his experience were on the same aircraft as the captain, but more so on the Antonov-2, a single-propeller biplane normally used for agriculture and forestry. It's like flying a Cessna. It's an AN-2, which is larger than a Cessna. It's been a workhorse aircraft. They still build them, which is just mind-boggling. China makes them. Good God. It also doesn't have any instrumentation for instrument or night flying. Yep, Miranda's making a face. He had 7,000 hours on that aircraft, half of them as captain. His next 1,600 hours were as first officer on the Tupolev-134. So he lacked in the same areas of engine configuration and glass cockpit. So, okay, put a captain that doesn't know what he's doing with a first officer that also doesn't know what he's doing. (laughs) It gets worse. How could this go wrong? (laughs) I hate to say it. On an aircraft that really shouldn't be flying because it has engine asymmetry and it has for months. I, yeah, I... Really hate to say that it gets worse, but it does. (laughs) It really does. During simulator training, there were remarks from his instructors that he struggled with standard operating procedures, especially regarding call-outs, crew resource management, and distribution of pilot flying and pilot monitoring duties. Oh, come on! (laughs) Really, Russia? Really? A big part of that is they didn't train CRM on two-person cockpit. So this is all problematic, but not as problematic as the last training deficiency. The first officer really struggled with flying with thrust asymmetry, especially with regards to paying attention to attitude and speed control during approach. He couldn't do it. So, 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 they shouldn't even have been in this 
plane. No. He, he was, his English was also found to be insufficient to operate an aircraft with all documentation in English. And it gets worse. This was the third flight with the two of them paired together. A terrible idea, really. Let's analyze the FDR, shall we? Yeah, we haven't even gotten into do, the data yet. Do we need to? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because there's a few more things. What? <laughs> Investigators found that things were off right from the beginning. So, during pre-flight procedures, the crew enters the aircraft position into the system so as to align the inertial reference system. This is to be done by the co-pilot with the pilot in command calling out the data from operational documents. One way or another, they entered the aircraft position with a latitude error of one minute, which is approximately equivalent to one nautical mile. That's pretty big, actually, when you're flying an airplane. Then they taxied and armed the autothrottle. Which wasn't working. Uh-huh. Which they signed off as having been aware of. As for takeoff, when Nick said that takeoff was done normally, I looked at him and was like, excuse me? That's what they write in the report. Quote, As the co-pilot was to be the pilot flying, the pilot in command, who was taxiing, was to transfer control to the co-pilot after taking the takeoff course in case of rolling start. Then, in accordance with the standard operating procedures, the co-pilot was to increase thrust to 40 to 60% N1 and press the toga button after matching the N1. The standard operating procedure recommends completing the takeoff thrust adjustment before 60 knots. After the takeoff thrust is adjusted, the captain should take control of the throttles in case of rejected takeoff and hold his hand on the throttles before V1 is reached and, if needed, adjust the takeoff thrust manually. In fact, the crew did not follow any of the standard operating procedure recommended procedures. End quote. They started takeoff with symmetric thrust lever angles, which they weren't supposed to do because they knew the engines were asymmetric. Did they? I feel like they just didn't care. So didn't. the left engine was at 70% N1 and the right engine was at 84% N1. This was extremely dangerous because they could have just steered off the runway. Yeah. Around the time of assumed control transfer, full left rudder was used to enter the takeoff course. Then the full right rudder was used to compensate for the yaw from the thrust asymmetry. Then the crew didn't input anything for 20 seconds during the takeoff roll up to 90 knots when the co-pilot then used full rudder. The crew finally hit the toga button, but because it was pressed after exceeding 84 knots, which is when the auto throttle switches to thrust hold, the throttles did not move to takeoff mode and the flight management computer was not able to align its position with the runway. When they reached 120 knots, one of the pilots finally trimmed the engines so that they had the same N1, but it didn't reach a matching N1 until 166 knots two seconds after takeoff. I'm surprised they even got off the ground. Me too. Yes. Because they shouldn't even be using the auto throttle. No. Because the auto throttle isn't working and the engines are asymmetric, which means if you use the auto throttle, it's going to increase the throttles at the same time, which is the point of the auto throttle. Well, it's supposed to keep them at the same N1, which I'll get into why it kept deactivating on previous flights because it does on this one. Let's tie in the CVR at the top of the descent, which is when the recording started. They were programming the flight management computer or the FMC, as I will henceforth call it. For approach, which they were supposed to have done in preparation for descent, not at descent. Yeah. The FMC didn't have the standard instrument approach patterns for PERM, so they were having to enter the fixes, which the co-pilot was seriously struggling with, particularly with having to enter miles and knots and was trying to do conversions with kilometers. So this whole 
thing is happening. Because of the struggle with programming, the crew did not complete the descent preparation and they skipped the landing briefing and the before descent checklist. Altogether. Because why would you use a checklist? And it gets worse. Why would you want to know what to do? And it gets worse. Amidst the descent, the crew did not cross-check each other when confirming assigned altitude or controlling the settings. They did not make call-outs when changing flight modes. Investigators performed a rather interesting analysis of the CVR that I have not seen done before. To gauge the crew's psychological status, an instrument speech analysis was performed. I'm not quite sure how. They don't really talk about it in the report, but they have five categories of stress. There's the base level, the quiescent level. 25 to 30% higher than that is the operational stress. So, I mean, you're working, you're a little stressed. That's normal. And it's normal for a cockpit. 30 to 70% higher than initial is the psychophysiological mobilization. 70 to 130% higher than initial is a high level of stress, and anything above that is considered full-on distress. Graphs of the captain's and first officer's stress level in the half hour leading up to the crash are on our website. Miranda, what do you notice about these, particularly in the first half of the graph more so than the second? It was unusually high. For who? The captain. Yeah, the captain's really stressed the entire half hour. Yeah. And investigators have no idea why, because the first officer's pretty chill and calm. For the most part. Until, you know, right before crashing. But the captain's, like, wigged out. Like, the entire time. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. I'll come back to that. Just to be clear. Through the descent, both pilots are swearing and breaking sterile cockpit procedure. The captain asked the flight attendant for a tea. On descent? Uh-huh. Not sure if he ever got the tea or not. I guess it, does, it doesn't matter. Really doesn't. Well, because they should be strapped in. Yeah. Captain's decision-making is really bad. Obviously, no. so far. It gets worse. When they got to 2,700 meters in altitude, mind you, I'm saying meters because that's what they were working in, The autopilot changed to altitude hold, and the N1 started oscillating, which went unnoticed by the crew. The autothrust was hunting for the N1, because the split was so large between the two engines. The FMC was also off by over 4.5 kilometers, due to the natural drift, as well as that initial input error from the very beginning, and the crew did not correct it with GPS or any other nav aids. The aircraft was in LNAV mode, and after passing the active point in the flight plan of the threshold of runway 21, the aircraft turned right before being told to do so by air traffic control, with a bank of 30 degrees. Then the crew set the altitude to 6,900 feet, switched to level change mode, and started descending. After passing a beam of runway 21 and unable to catch it with a speed of 220 knots, the aircraft turned left, and the crew were very confused. The captain commanded, selecting the heading select mode to get back on course, and they turned back to 30 degrees heading. During that turn, the autothrottle disengaged because, couple of conditions, the flaps were less than 12.5 degrees, the spoiler was deflected more than 2.5 degrees, and the thrust split finally exceeded 700 pounds. That's a lot. Is a lot. This caused a whole chain of events. They switched off the warning that the... Autothrust disengaged, and the crew moved the throttle synchronically, so they were at the same thrust lever angle, which they aren't supposed to do. Right, that means they have them both in their hand at the same level, but when they're... So it's like doing the same thing the autothrottle would have done. 
While the auto throttle was keeping the two engines apart and maintaining the same N1 between two engines. Because the auto throttle looks for N1. Not, not the for, thrust lever angle. Right, not for the lever angle. Which is fine, but now it's not working. So the crew's like, cool, I'm just going to put both engines to the same thrust lever angle. So now one's working much harder than the other. Which we still haven't debunked why, by the way. And neither crew member monitored N1 at all, even though it's technically the captain's job at this point. I'm going to skip ahead a bit because there's a lot of detail, and this is already going on pretty long. Eventually, the first officer called for flaps 30, and the captain didn't respond because he was talking to approach control. So the first officer called for it again, and again. Then the pilot in command, the captain, in a very distressed manner, told the co-pilot to do everything by himself. No? Yeah, that's a giant red flag. So the flaps extended, and then they began descending to 600 meters with a speed of 150 knots, throttles at idle, and gear extended. Airspeed dropped with the flaps further extended, and the autopilot changed to altitude hold to maintain 600 meters. They reached their V-ref of 130 knots, the speed they're supposed to land with, and continued decreasing. So the first officer increased the throttles, first to 27 degrees, then 40 degrees, and the thrust split is at 13% N1. So they started a left banking moment, and the autopilot applied right wheel as far as it could, but it wasn't enough. So they started turning left at a rate of 2 degrees per second, and the first officer did not notice. Only when they reached a 32 degree left bank, the co-pilot applied more right wheel than the autopilot could, so the autopilot switched to CWS roll mode, which the first officer was unfamiliar with, so he also input pitch, which switched the autopilot to CWS pitch mode, and the aircraft began climbing. 20 seconds later, the co-pilot, likely inadvertently, began trimming the stabilizer, which automatically disengaged the autopilot. Completely. And neither pilot noticed. How blows my mind. Okay, listen, Linda. When you disengage the autopilot, it makes a sound. You can hear it from the cabin. Yeah, yep. you can, especially if you're on an Airbus, but you can on a Boeing, too. I mean, you can hear it. There's an alarm. This is a pretty easy one. Stand by. Like... If you're so inept at this aircraft that you don't know what the chime chime is for the autopilot to turn off, you really shouldn't be flying this aircraft. That's correct. That sounds like the master caution alarm. Yeah, it's not. That's the autopilot disconnect on the classic 737. Oh, that's nice. But how do you miss that? Anyway... So the first officer noticed an increase in speed, so he reduced the engine thrust, and the speed reduced to 110 knots. <sighs> 20 knots below their landing speed, just to be clear. Yep. The captain finally noticed. Well, he wasn't doing anything, so and heaven forbid. There's a reason he's not doing anything. And asked the first officer to increase. That's all, increase. So the first officer increased the engines to almost takeoff mode. And they're also still climbing, correct? Yeah. Air traffic control noticed that they were at almost 900 meters. They're supposed to be at 600 meters. And still climbing. He said, according to my information, you are climbing now. Altitude 900. Confirm. The captain said, look at the vertical speed indicator. And then confirmed to the controller that they were indeed climbing. They were then instructed to turn right and descend to 600 meters and retry the approach. 
The captain and controller continued to discuss, with the captain confirming that they would follow instructions. But they didn't. The controller asked, is everything all right with the crew? And the captain responded, affirm. All the while, the captain was making occasional inputs to the control column. He's the pilot monitoring. Yeah. Even causing a bank of up to 50 degrees to the right. The look on your face is correct. (laughs) When asking to land without a go-around. In response, the first officer cried out, Ah, where are you? What are you doing? (laughs) My my thoughts exactly. What are you doing? The crew recovered to wings level, but started climbing again unnoticed, and once more, the speed dropped to 113 knots. How, How do you not notice you're climbing? How? Then they started turning left again because of the engine asymmetry, and nothing changed for 25 seconds. Nobody touched anything. No one did anything for 25 seconds. I don't think they knew what to do. Uh, not so much the issue. They really just... Spatial disorientation is very real here. Because they are in the clouds at this point. But there's a lot of other things at play. It gets worse, basically. So once they were banked 30 degrees to the left, again, 30... Anyway. The first officer asked the captain to take control. Take it. Take it. After realizing he was not able to control the aircraft. But the captain said, take what, asshole? I can't do it either. You're gonna die! Like, figure it out! (laughs) Hand fly the airplane if you f***ing have to! Figure it out! Well, the airplane's already in hand fly mode at this point anyway. But they're not doing anything! They didn't hear the freaking horn to the air- They think the airplane's doing it on its own! Right. And then, without seemingly any reason, the captain applied an abrupt left control. They're in a left bank already. (laughs) Increasing the bank from 30 degrees to 76 degrees showing a psychological breakdown and loss of composure. The co-pilot yelled, on the contrary, in the opposite direction. Which is, I mean... <laughs> You're not wrong. I'm assuming this to is all right. in Russian, so yes. it's... Pr- yeah, I'm The sure. other way! Go that way. <laughs> the captain continued commanding to the left, performing all, uh, almost a full barrel roll with vertical acceleration of 4.3 Gs. Ew. Hence, the barrel roll was not a good thing. These poor people on this flight... So, the continued input in the wrong direction may sound familiar to you. In episode 125, we covered Crossair Flight 498 with a Russian-trained pilot in a Western-style aircraft. Miranda, why is that important? Oh, no. The, ver- the, hor- the, the horizon. The, the ADI. The ADI. They don't know how it works. Because it's opposite. Yeah. Essentially. Oh, no. So, let me... I, I did not write out notes for this part because at this point when I was writing, it was like 6.30 and we recorded at 7 and I was hungry. So uh, let me zip right back to my notes from that. Well, okay. So for those of you who haven't listened to that episode or are unfamiliar with what happened on Soviet aircraft, the background of the ADAI moves and the little plane in the middle is stationary. No, other way no it's the other way around. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. On Soviet aircraft, the horizon stays level. That's right. The horizon stays level, the aircraft moves. But on American-made aircraft, the horizon moves moves, and the aircraft aircraft is stationary. Because it's like... It's supposed to depict the view you actually see outside. Out the window. So... Because it's supposed to work in conjunction with your vertigo. So the way you could almost think about it is American-made aircraft are first person depictions. Yep. 
And Soviet-made aircraft are third-person depiction. Right. right. Like if you're playing a video game yep. and you're watching the plane move. Right. Which is a problem. Because then they look the same when they're doing opposite things. Right. right. This report did not have a good picture of this. So I am asking you when you make the website for this that you use the photos from the Crossair flight because it's a much better if I remember visual depiction. Or you can just go look at the Crossair. Yes. yes. I have it. It's in the it's in the blog post for the Crossair flight. Episode 125. 125. So they're fighting that on top of everything. So now we're all disoriented. No one knows what the hell's going on. They crash into the ground. Now, I have one more point to make. It gets worse. The AAIB called. Yes. They said they had more information. That AAIB from the UK. Hello? <laughs> they were like, hey, I heard you're investigating this crash. Hey. And I have something Hello? for you. Out of the blue. So they were told that during boarding, the captain informed the passengers of the flight details, and one of the passengers was concerned and texted his friend in the UK that he was worried about his flight because the captain sounded drunk. Oh, Investigators had the body fragments of the crew and several passengers analyzed. It was impossible to get an exact blood alcohol content because the bodies were fragmented. Yes. If you saw the the photo, you would understand. Yeah. And suffered an abrupt loss of blood. Yeah. Yeah. So pathologists were unable to conduct conventional chemical analysis of either blood or urine samples. Makes sense. Instead, they had to analyze muscular tissue as it is more resistant to decomposition than other organ or tissues. The average level of ethanol in the body fragments of the captain were between half and 1% higher than those who had not consumed alcohol before the flight, indicating that he indeed did drink and have alcohol in his system before death. Which, now, by the way, is illegal. You're not allowed yes, to do that. Yes, heavily. Pretty much in every place on Earth. Yeah. You can't, now, you can't take even controlled substances. You have to have special permission to do so. Mm -hmm. So this came from... The pathology section of the report, quote, according to the data in medical manuals, such content of alcohol, 0.46% and 0.96% in the muscular tissue, which was not subject to evident postmortem processes, autolytic, bacterial, or thermal, is correspondent to the content of 03 to 1.12% in human blood. That is physically impossible. Yes. Because lethal levels, depending on who you ask, are around 0.4%. So I tried to do a deep dive into medical journals. They were not helpful. Oh, well. No one can really tell what the correspondence is between alcohol content in muscle versus alcohol content in the blood. Right. There's no clear ratio, okay. conversion. So regardless of what his actual blood alcohol content was. it is The problem is, is he had a blood alcohol content. Yep. Yeah. That he should not have had. Now, I reminded myself. Thank you. Mm -hmm. The reason that they were able to quite definitively say that he was intoxicated from the CVR was when he made the PA announcements to the cabin saying that they were descending, blah, blah, blah. He mixed up the flight number. He mixed up times. He said, oh. good evening. Uh, good morning. It's We're landing at 4.50 p.m. a.m. Right. And we have 20 hours, 20 minutes to go. He was more than a little bit out of it. 
No idea when he was drinking. No idea how long it was, how much it was. And this was two hours after they had already taken off. So we have to assume that he drank before they left as well as, well, they were flying, maybe? I don't know. Well, it depends on how much he drank before they left, though. Yes. Because alcohol also can increase over time. You're correct, but we have a whole point about that, don't you? No. You don't talk about that whole thing about the test before they left? Oh, I forgot that, too. I'm sorry, I wrote a novel. It's so An hour and a half before they left the ground, their company actually had a medical medical check on the entire crew. And deemed them all fit to fly. So I have to imagine that sometime between that test and takeoff is when he drank? That or the person who did the test didn't care. Right. But Whatever the case. To be fair, though, I mean, if you think about it, that's 30 minutes, right, that he had between the end of the test and the flight. Correct? Am I getting that time? time An hour and a half. Hour and a half. Oh, so he had an hour and a half to drink. Oh, so he had plenty of time. Yeah. And it, depending on what you drink... Probably vodka. It's Russia. Yeah, I was going to say. But Whatever's you know, in I his mean, water bottle, whatever. probably. Yeah, like, the problem with that is, is not only can you drink a lot in that time, but you can also, over time, your alcohol... It, it metabolizes. Alcohol metabolizes, metabolizes means- and then it increases, and then you get more intoxicated. That's when you feel more intoxicated. If you right. ever want to see a good example of this... One of the YouTubers we follow, her name is Lauren Powell. She'll do how many drinks does it take to get to 0.08. Mm-hmm. And in her more recent videos, she will continue measuring her blood alcohol content for hours after consuming. Yeah. After getting to 0.08. And it goes up. It does. For it does. several hours. And this is what I think a lot of people don't understand when they drink. They're like, oh, I've had three drinks and I don't feel anything. But they did that all in an hour. And I'm like, just you wait like an hour and a half from now. You're going to feel like you holy feel- crap. Wee! Yeah, like, yeah. like yeah. me, that's what happened to me. I was like, Wee. yeah. But the problem is, is that he's drinking in general. Yeah, right. Yes, you're correct. Also, he's probably in uniform. Yep. Yep. Which means someone who was serving him the alcohol, unless he brought it himself. No idea how. Is giving a flight crew person who should be on duty. Right. Alcohol. More than likely, because he's in uniform, it's probably self-driven. He probably got it himself somehow, some way. But I mean, I don't know. There's ways to get alcohol in the airport where yeah. you can get well, a bottle. This is one of those things that they don't really talk about, but crew don't have to go through security in the same sense that right. people do normally. And they can carry like a full water bottle with them because it's a safety thing. They should have stuff to drink yeah. while on duty. Not alcohol. So that they're not dehydrated. But yeah, it's not supposed to be alcohol. And any responsible well, pilot would never no do that. no wonder he couldn't figure out what the f*** he was doing. He why he said intoxicated. Why he said I can't do it either? Yeah. So not only okay, so let let's let's regroup. Let's let's summarize, right? We got an aircraft that shouldn't be flying because it has engine asymmetry that they should have fixed months in advance, right? So there's that. Yep. They actually should not have even been flying this airplane, period. No. So we have stuff that's the auto throttle's not working, the T cache isn't working. Well, and the auto throttle was shutting off on previous flights. Because the asymmetry was so bad that it was just like, nope, I can't do this anymore. It was deemed that the auto throttle wasn't working, period. Like, it shouldn't be used. And we'll get into this in the findings and the recommendations, but maintenance had written that they had disconnected the auto throttle from functioning at all. And yet, 
and yet they could turn it on? Right. So they were wrong. Lies. So plane issues. Okay. Training issues. Yeah. So we have two pilots. Who don't speak English. Who don't speak English flying an aircraft that only has English. Yep. They didn't pass captain training. They didn't pass CRM training. The things they're training on are not approved correctly. The CRM training isn't for two-person cockpit. So there's that. They're On having top of they're having to do the job of engineers and navigators, which they're not used to doing. Yes, and then flying the aircraft with the asymmetry, but not paying attention to the asymmetry. So when something goes wrong, they don't know what to do. And on top of that, you have an intoxicated pilot who can't do his job because he's too drunk. Bingo. And stressed because of it. So going back to those stress charts, it makes sense now why yep. he was so st- he was drunk. Yep. Yeah, you would be. Stressed. That's why you're not allowed to operate heavy machinery. Yep. AKA forklift airplane car. Yep. After you've been drinking. <laughs> don't worry, I don't have anything to say that it gets worse anymore. Okay. Because that's well, the end of it. Jesus. But it did get worse for th- the entire thing. Everything like, they looked at was wrong, essentially. Every single thing the investigators looked at was like, well, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, that's a problem. But also, let's look at a couple more things. Oh, yeah, that one's wrong, too. That's not good. Maybe maybe this was okay. No, that's that's bad, too. No, it just continued the entire time. Every single thing they looked at had an issue Bruh. in this investigation. Can Bruh. you guess how many recommendations there are? There are 40. Oh, my God. I don't do 40 recommendations. Okay, well, we're going to take a break and metabolize that information (laughs) and we'll come back with all the findings and wrecks hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th do you want to tell people the big news all right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Miranda's still mad, in case you were wondering. Yeah. I just, it's, it's mind-boggling to me that that this can even so the stuff that happened with like the airplane and the crew not being trained correctly okay it's russia i hate to say that but it they have a notorious especially after the dissolution of the soviet union as i mentioned good maintenance staff were in short supply parts were in short supply so i mean aeroflot earned itself this notorious Reputation. Reputation of being a really terrible airline that's extremely unsafe. And actually, for the last couple of decades, they have not been even close to the bottom of that list like a lot of other airlines in the world. They've gotten so better. I don't I don't believe in this reputation anymore, although Leading now, up to February of 2022, they were doing good. And we'll leave it there because the current situation cannot be good for them. But that is also not entirely the fault of their own. So... Prior to this, they were actually operating mostly Western aircraft, and during this time of this accident, they were operating mostly Western aircraft because that's where you got aircraft from after the Soviet Union dissolved. Yeah. So that was pretty much their only choice, and they were also very reliable aircraft, so that wasn't really supposed to be much of an issue. How you take care of it is a different situation, and talk about this, but that doesn't have entirely to do with Aeroflot. 
but it does have to do with the regulations, and it does have to do with Aeroflot and Nord. Because they were a much smaller company, they were a regional company, this was basically able to happen. So let's dive into some findings, of which there were also quite a few, but these findings aren't, again, bullet-pointed, much like many other reports are. They are pages. Oh, jeez. So I am not doing pages. I am reading certain parts of these findings because I read through all of this and deemed that much of this was banter. Hmm. Some of it's important, though. They found that the Meteorological Service was in compliance with the current regulations. The weather conditions at the time of the accident did not threaten the safety of the ILS, or Instrument Landing System, approach at runway 21 at Perm Aerodrome. So this... This was the only thing that was okay. Was the one thing that was like, well, the weather wasn't amazing, but it wasn't a factor. No, I mean, they could see. The only reason that it had anything to do with the accident at all is because it helped them with the disorientation piece. Because they were in the clouds, it was dark, pretty easy to get disoriented. So that's the only thing the weather had to do with this at all. If the weather hadn't been there, I still don't know if it would have made the situation any better. I don't think so. The captain's drunk! Pretty much. He legit couldn't even do his monitoring. At the moment that the first officer was screaming, take it, take it, because... His the same thing that happened to him in training, where he realized he cannot deal with an asymmetric thrust aircraft, was happening on this airplane. Worst nightmare for a pilot like him. And his captain can't even take that airplane because he's drunk. It was pretty much over from there. Unfortunately, that's just the truth. Disoriented or not, this probably still would have ended badly. So that's a whole thing. They found that the aircraft was dispatched for the last flight on September 13, 2008, with two MEL items, including the TCAS and the auto throttle. So these are two things, and their their whole point here that they continue on, and I don't, I'm just going to summarize the rest of this, is that those two MEL items had been going on for a long period of time, which really comes down to maintenance. Yeah. So maintenance really was kind of the big issue there, and so they... Make that their next point. They found that according to the maintenance personnel, the auto throttle was deactivated in accordance with the MEL. DC and AC auto throttles CBs were opened and collared. The auto throttle switch was tagged with in-op. Well, obviously it wasn't. Yeah. Since they still used it. it. To be fair, they probably got that far because the auto throttle was still yep. working. Correct. The only reason it was allegedly in-op is because the engines should have been in-op. Yes, because they shouldn't have been flying the aircraft to begin with. Well, and more than likely what happened is at some point in time, probably one or two weeks after the aircraft was tagged with having an issue with the auto throttle. No, it was tagged with having an issue with the auto throttle the day before the accident. Right. But it had been going on for a month and some. Yes. So some point along the way, some pilot was like, I don't care. We're going to try it out anyways because they're obviously not fixing it. And they were like, oh, look, it's still working somewhat. We're just going to use it. And this continued, and then pilots probably regularly flew this airplane. For all we know, these pilots flew this airplane as well prior to this, since this is what they were rated for, quote-unquote. They had, I think, 12 737s at this point in their fleet. Right, so 1 in 12 chance you're going to be flying this on every single flight. That's if pretty good likelihood. the only 737 that had this problem. Right. Who knows? We don't know. And we're not going to speculate on that, but... They probably knew, and they were like, I don't know, just use it anyways. So that's the whole thing. 
They also found that despite that, the investigation team revealed that in all the seven flights, including the accident flight, four different crews used the autothrottle in flight. So they weren't the only crew doing this. Like I said. It was not tagged. It's it's not. Even if it was, they untagged it because they were like, I don't know, we're just going to use it anyway. Who so cares? that all comes down to the maintenance piece because it took well over a month and something for something to happen. But that's because they did nothing about it. Yeah. They weren't fixing the issue, which... They get into this in the recommendations, but holy crap, that's bad maintenance practice. It's horrible maintenance practice. And why that was happening is because there was no regulation in Russia about how long an MEL item can go unfixed. So there wasn't like a given period of time that they then had to ground the airplane and fix the issue to send it flying again. They could just keep it on the MEL write-up list, say this isn't needed for this flight, and just keep flying the frickin' airplane, making money. Eventually, lack thereof. They found that in the Russian Federation, there is no flight training program that would address the CRM problems encountered by the pilots when transitioning from multi-crew Russian aircraft to aircraft with two crew members. So not only did they not understand CRM, but they couldn't do it with the two of them. Right, this is what I was saying. They weren't trained for two-person cockpit CRM. It's like... The problem is, is going from a four-person cockpit to two, because usually the flight engineer monitors stuff with the engines and a lot of the stuff with instruments. A navigator will tell you which way you need to go, you know. And these were their two big deficiencies on this flight. Right. Yep. Because they weren't used to doing that, they couldn't do it. Correct. And their navigation was garbage. Yep. Because they were never forced to do that before. So I'm pretty sure the pilot, the captain, on top of the fact that he was also drunk, didn't realize all of his duties aligned with everything that the flight engineer and a navigator would do. Mm -hmm. Yep. Which, as long as you know how to fly a 737, can be relatively easy to do. Unless you don't speak English and don't know how to fly the airplane. Yep. (laughs) And then it's very hard. (sighs) <sighs> On top of this, much like we were just kind of just saying, they found that neither of the pilots was trained for special upset recovery techniques. So, so once, the airplane know, was, yeah. once the airplane was in a bad bank angle or asymmetry was causing which, them to tip too far or they were in a barrel roll. Which astounds me because in basic twin engine, multi-engine training, you're trained to do that. Correct. Like, some people get that training within 200 flight hours. You're correct. The problem is, is that in Russia, they probably didn't train them on aircraft with... Two engines. ...far apart like that. They probably just threw them in the TU-134 simulators and said, here's what happens when one engine's cut out. Nothing. It doesn't do the same. Because both engines are only, like, 15 feet apart at the rear of the airplane and pointed in the same direction... And then you don't have the same lift issues, like asymmetric lift. So you don't have to deal with the yaw. You don't have to deal with a bank. Right. And now you have both. Yep. I'm honestly surprised they didn't stall. Me too. I'm very, very, with how slow they were going at one point, I'm very surprised they didn't stall. Right. They were unbelievably close to that point. It's a little bit of why the barrel roll happened. Obviously, it's primarily because he just tipped the wing to the left and they went just kept going to the left. Yeah. But also they were at that point where they were barely stable. And so as soon as he basically caused one wing to lose lift lift anyways, it just 
barrel rolled. rolled. The way that happens, it's just called a spin. Because at this point, the nose went pitched down immediately as well with the left turn, which is indicative of a spin. This is what happens in most, Stall spins. most stalls. Not all aircraft, but this is very easy to exemplify on a Cessna versus a Piper, is when you put the airplane into a stall, it has a tendency to want to tip to one side, and it will then fall over into a spin. Yeah. How you recover from that, you're supposed to train, learn, figure out. However... That's the big reason why I don't want to do flight training. I understand. Because you basically intentionally have to go into stall spins. Yeah, sort of. They don't usually put you into a full spin situation, though. But still, that freaks me out. It's not as big of a deal once you've done it a couple times. It freaks me out. It's really not that bad. I have anxiety. I'm not allowed to fly. I'm on meds where I'm not allowed to fly, so yeah. this is a moot point. But scary stuff. So that's and a you whole should thing. know how to do it. Right. So that's a whole thing. And the reality is though that they were so close to the ground anyways, they deemed it impossible for them to be able to recover from, even if they had like the best trained pilots in the world. Yeah. This this was an unrecoverable mistake. Once they were in that left bank. They were beyond... Was it? They can't do it anymore. They were beyond the max bank angle. They couldn't recover. It was... The airplane was going down. They found that both pilots learned technical English at a non-certified training center. Oh, well, no wonder they didn't know English. The teachers who conducted the training did not have any aviation, linguistic, or pedagogical education. So, not only were they not teaching them, like, great English... But also they weren't good teachers. English that they would be using. Right, they weren't teaching them aviation English, which is extremely important for their job. Bruh. That's like if you asked me to fly a plane in Spanish. I can speak conversational Spanish, great. Right, but you can't... I can't fly a plane in Spanish. Right, so... Yeah, that's pretty much the situation they were in. Bad. Bad. Como se dice thrust in Espanol? <laughs> No lo sé. <laughs> they found that the crew was formed without taking into account the level of the pilot's professional skills. The two the two member crew was formed of the pilot in command, the captain, who had little experience as a captain, and the co-pilot who had little experience on the type, provided both used to operate multi-crew aircraft. So they flew with other crew members in the past on other aircraft, but they were not professionally trained for this aircraft. They were not well-trained. They were not... They shouldn't have been flying together. Let alone on the airplane and at that, all. And that was a point that was made. Yes. Was in... I don't know if you remember me saying earlier something about crew formation mm-hmm. being a deficiency in all of the manuals and such. This is an example. These two should not have been paired together, and that was a fault of the airline. Yes. Yep. They just kind of went, he's a captain. He's, he's a first, first officer. officer. Let them fly together. You have to look into training and stuff, too, to make sure at least one of them knows what the f*** they're doing. Right. Or, and if you have a first officer who is deficient on asymmetric thrust, don't put him on a plane that can only use asymmetric thrust. I don't think they cared. No. The next couple of findings go together. They found that according to the forensic medical expertise carried out by the state health institution... Perm Forensic Medical Expertise Bureau, the pilot in command had ethyl alcohol in his body before death. Please note that it does not note an amount. Right. 
But they do say in the next one, they found that for the last 30 minutes of flight, the PIC's stress was 40 to 70% higher than the operational level, which means he was intoxicated. The most possible causes of the increased stress were the presence of alcohol in the PIC's body and or accumulated fatigue, most likely the combination of these factors. Because remember, it's also three-something in the morning Moscow time they're landing at this airport, which you might recall is a window of circadian low. Right. Just to add to everything else. So you're tired and you're drunk. Yep. You know what that? You know what happens when that happens to you me? I, I go to sleep. <laughs> I right. go to bed. Maybe As, that accounts for the 25 seconds of nothing. Right. As if we need a, a list of the things they did wrong on top of everything else that we've talked about. They found that during the whole flight, with a rare exceptions, the crew significantly deviated from the SOPs. And examples of that, mandatory cross-checks were not carried out. Flight's modes were changed without informing the other pilot. No call-outs about the FMA indications or flight mode changes were made. Checklists were not read. The before landing preparations, as well as the recurrent one after changing the approach pattern, was not carried out. The pilot flying pilot monitoring duties distribution was not complied with. The CRM was unsatisfactory. The control was passed from one pilot to another without the mandatory call-out, which resulted in situations when, during some portions of the flight, virtually nobody controlled the aircraft, like 20 to 25 seconds before they went into a spin. And the order and sequence of actions, particularly at takeoff and approach, was not followed. Duh. You know what I found really weird, though, when you were going over the SOPs for takeoff? was one person was taxiing and then the other person was in charge of takeoff and then the other person had to go back again and then it went back and forth. You're correct. So that's part of it is taxiing is always done by the pilot in command, regardless of who pilot flying is to be. In the event that the pilot flying is going to be the first officer, they have to make that transfer of responsibility. That was the reason why. If the pilot in command was the pilot flying, it wouldn't have been that complicated. Why does the pilot in command have to taxi? No idea. Yeah, I would... Why? But this, we've had a couple instances like this in the past in some of our episodes where the captain is the only one who's trained to do those things, or the pilot flying, it's they're supposed to be their responsibility, basically, pilot monitoring's responsibility, something like that. And it's, it's really dependent on the airline, the country's regulations, or things like that. In this case... I don't know whose decision that was, but that's supposed to be their SOP for the company. So they're, he was supposed to do all the taxi, takeoff prep, everything. That's just so confusing. Yeah. Because then you have to say your aircraft, your aircraft, your aircraft, your aircraft. Right. It's just easier if you this have why most pilot flying does all the flying responsibilities, the pilot right. monitoring does all the monitoring. This is why most of the world runs on that from beginning to end of flight, unless emergency situations arise and the other pilot believes they have the right. better yeah. experience to handle the situation. And investigators don't really know exactly when control transferred because the CBR doesn't go back that far. So that's, I don't know if you caught me saying, but when they assumed that the first officer took control. Yeah. Because you can't. Tell. Right. So that's all of the findings that I'm going to do because, again, I mean, I skipped pages of stuff because it was. I feel like we've covered most of the stuff that happened. Though. Well, that last bullet point that I did right after that, they talk about the specifics on like who was doing what when on the approach, oh. or what they assumed, and they literally spend a page and a half doing that single finding. And I skipped all of that, too. It's not it worth it. It doesn't really matter. You, we got to the point. It's not worth it. So. The conclusion. Is a page. So, buckle up. An entire up. page. 
Ah, uh, we've had pages before, so. The immediate cause of the accident was spatial disorientation of the crew, especially the captain, who was the pilot flying at the final stage of the flight, which led to the left flip over, a steep descent, and the crash of the aircraft. The spatial disorientation was experienced during the nighttime operation in clouds with both autopilot and autothrottle disengaged. Contributing to the development of the spatial disorientation and failure to recover from it was a lack of proficiency in aircraft handling, crew resource management, and of skills associated with upset recovery using Western-type attitude indications that are found on foreign and modern Russian-made aircraft. This type of indication differs from the one used on aircraft types previously flown by the crew, Tupolev-134 and Antonov-2. The cause above was determined on the basis of flight recorders and air traffic control recorder data analysis, examination of the airframe and engine wreckage, results of the accident flight simulation, findings of the independent expertise conducted by test pilots from State Research Institute of Civil Aviation and Gromov Flight Research Institute, as well as line pilots, and also on the basis of all the works conducted with participation of experts from Bermuda, France, Russia, UK, and USA in the course of the investigation. The systematic cause of the accident was insufficient management by the airline of flight and maintenance operations of the Boeing 737 type of aircraft. These deficiencies in the aircraft maintenance also revealed through safety inspections conducted by the Russian Transport Oversight Authority and the Russian CAA after the accident. Deficiencies in the aircraft maintenance led to a situation when flights were performed for a long time with a throttle stagger that exceeded the limitations in the AMM, and when the maintenance staff did not follow the AMM, recommended troubleshooting procedures. The need to manage the throttle stagger during the approach increased crew workload. The forensic medical examination performed in the State Healthcare Center of Special Status, PERM Regional Forensic Expertise Bureau, confirmed the presence of ethyl alcohol in the captain's body before his death. The captain's recent work schedule during the time period before the accident was conducive to fatigue and did not comply with national regulations. End of conclusion. Jesus Christ. It was a long one. And needless to say, this is like Swiss cheese perfect storm, right? Like, it really is. This was all the things that compiled to make this accident come true. There are shortcomings... And I'll read these. This is what they deemed shortcomings. This is kind of like how we have usually the probable cause and then contributing factors. This is what that is essentially to them. It's just the way they wrote it. The pilot's personal files did not contain complete sets of documents required to assess the level of their professional training. The FAP point from... Final approach point. Yeah, final approach point. From runway 21 approach at Perm Airport was entered into the FMS of the airport with an error or the airplane with an error during the accident flight and some previous flights the fdr channel and for the control wheel input was faulty while the channel for control column inputs recorded the values with a shift so they kind of make a point of this in the recommendations but i didn't really touch on it the fdr wasn't maintained very well right and that's because they weren't testing it regularly the approved implementation plans developed on the basis of accident or incident investigation teams recommendations are not complied with so previous accidents, they weren't just not fixing problems. The approach patterns at Perm Aerodrome contain an error with respect to the magnetic azimuth of FAF fix, which is just saying that along the path, it's the system is not functioning correctly and is not documented correctly for the airport. So you can't really perform a approach to this airport correctly anyways. It wouldn't have been a contributing factor in this accident, even if they had done the ILS. The reference letter by the by the Boeing company stating that it, quote, heavily relies on English language courses, end quote, conducted by Medic LTD, or Limited, was provided without a sufficient analysis of the status and possibilities of the mentioned organization. So 
this really doesn't matter. It's all about translating manuals, and it's just unnecessary. Anyway. Safety recommendations. Again, there were 40 of these. And I am not doing 40 of these. Can I summarize it the way that the Air Disasters episode did? You could do a quick summary, but then I'm going to go through some of these. Overhaul the entire Russian aviation system. Pretty much. I mean, you're going to have to do that, right? I mean, the systematic issues that happened here. Yep. You're going to have to do that. I'll talk about a couple of things that changed after we go through the safety recommendations that I know changed for sure, but here's... The entire thing was garbage. Total garbage. Absolute trash. Yep. Nothing went right. Right. So, I'm going to skip some of these as we go here, but they recommend considering the practicability of increasing requirements to flight training programs and transition training programs and elaborate a mandatory syllabus minimum for every aircraft type in order to improve the level of training and avoid simplifications during the training. Basically, just make sure they're actually getting fully trained on the aircraft. Yeah, make sure they know what they're doing. Yep. They recommend developing a CRM training program for flight crews that fly two-member crew aircraft and ensure this program is mandatory for flight personnel who transition from multi-crew aircraft to two-crew aircraft. Okay, pretty straightforward. Talked about this about six times now. They recommend ensuring that the aviation psychologist when selecting personnel for transition training should pay attention to the personality traits for the candidates with regard to their emotional reactions and behavior in abnormal situations. Like workload, stress, etc. Yeah, drinking. But also, for example, the first officer's behavior, actually, of take it, take take it, it, take it. Yeah, like, I can't do it. Rather than just figuring it out. To be fair, there should be a backup of that other pilot when that happens. The captain should have been able to fly the airplane, absolutely. But also, the first officer shouldn't be in that cockpit if he's just screaming, take it, take it, take it at any given moment. Yeah. It is one thing if you say, I'm disoriented at this moment. Can you take the aircraft while I reorient myself? I think in the time it would have taken him to say that, they would have died. Potentially, but the captain actually might have been able to save the aircraft instead of putting it into a left turn if he knew what he was doing. That's Because they were in stable flight when he was started to go into that left bank. They were still in stable flight. It could have been recovered. I just don't understand why he was like, left? Like, I don't, I don't it's understand. It's the attitude indicator. Yeah, and being drunk. He thought that they were rolling to the right, so he was correcting it to the left, when really he was making it so much worse. Right. They recommend arranging and conducting research of spatial disorientation and upset conditions and develop practical safety measures. Based on the research results, develop and implement a special flight crew training course, similar to upset recovery training, that would contain theory and practice. Okay. Duh. (laughs) They should be doing that anyway. Mm Mm-hmm. They recommend developing and implementing English language proficiency requirements for flight personnel who fly aircraft with documentation in English, as well as for maintenance personnel who maintain the the above-mentioned aircraft. Yeah, we didn't even touch on that. Yeah. We didn't even touch on the fact that if these maintenance crews can't read English, they can't maintain the plane. Exactly. That's probably why they weren't using the AMM. They were a contract company, not the airline themselves, and they just weren't doing maintenance basically. They were doing the very bare minimum needed to keep the airplane flying. They recommend considering the practicability of using aircraft with Western-type attitude indicators at colleges of initial flight training. While Russian training aircraft for of such types would be designed, consider the practicability of acquiring Western aircraft suitable for initial training. As an alternative measure, consider installing Western-type attitude indicators on the already-used Russian training aircraft. 
basically they want it to become standard to use the Western type because they're not building the Russian style attitude indicators anymore at this point. So they were like, just don't, don't even rely on it. Don't try it. Just use the ones that everyone else uses. Just train, right, like everybody else. So you can and buy retrofit. other things. Right, and retrofit to have those as well. They recommend considering the necessity of inspecting the level of training of pilots who were trained for Boeing 737 at the FTI Center, so that specific training center here in Denver, and the Flight Training Center of St. Petersburg State University of Civil Aviation in Russia. On the basis of the inspection, consider the necessity of additional training. So basically, review everybody who's gone through training. And see if they need to get more training. And, yeah, get them set up for success. I lied. What? The flight training center is still open. Okay, well, the flight training center is still open then. Flight Training International? Yep. Okay. It still exists. I don't know. I don't know why I thought it was closed. Probably because it says it's closed right now. Sure. But it's also nighttime on a, on Sunday. a Sunday. For those of you who care, aka who are local, it is right next to the United Airlines Training Center. That makes a lot of sense. So it's still where it was before. Yes. Yep. It is off of 35th and Quebec. That doesn't surprise me. Which is also off of MLK and Quebec. They do actually get a lot of flight training, even for local, not just international, but they do assist in this for actual domestic carriers in the U.S. too. They recommend ensuring that the flight personnel strictly follow the SOP, ensure continuous monitoring of flights using, among other means, CVR records, readout. So, training by also monitoring? Mm-hmm. Using your resources. And what a just concept. also maybe, like, this is, this is, by the way, directly to the airline, basically ensuring that their pilots are doing what they're supposed to do. They recommend ensuring continuous MEL usage monitoring. Avoid flights with extended MEL items without a detailed analysis of any particular case. Don't continue to just put on the MEL, like, write-off list that the airplane can continue to fly. Eventually, you have to fix the problem. Or if you're not, you have to give a really detailed explanation of why. Not just so the airplane can continue to operate for revenue service. not how this works. No, because it's not helping anybody. They recommend ensuring that the airline psychologists, when selecting applicants for transition training, pay more attention to their personal traits with regard to the emotional reaction and behavior in abnormal situations, increased workload and stress, and if they find negative traits, give particular recommendations as to whether these pilots are suitable for transition training and or if they require individual approach. So, literally just paying a lot more attention to how an individual is doing in transition training to, say, a 737. Yeah. When you've only flown Russian aircraft. Right. Are they behaving very differently and trying to transition to this aircraft? Are they behaving negatively? If so, should they continue or should they just get more special attention to try to get them in there? What's needed? They recommend developing and implementing prevention measures to maintain high level of safety when transitioning to new aircraft types. Pretty much the same thing as before. It's just... Hitting on it again. They recommend assessing the English language proficiency level of pilots who fly Western-made aircraft and who were trained at MTech Limited. So, the company that also supposedly gave these pilots the English language that they had. On the basis of this assessment, consider the necessity of additional training at a certified training center, since this one wasn't. This recommendation is also applicable to maintenance personnel who maintain Western aircraft. Literally just train them on proper English or aviation. Yeah, make sure they... That when they get on the aircraft, they're going to know what to do. Right. (laughs) 
And like where to look and how to do stuff because they can read and understand the language. Exactly. They recommend arranging and conducting special training for pilots who fly Boeing 737 aircraft without previous experience on aircraft with space depart engines, as they put it, with regard to handling such aircraft in case of thrust asymmetry. Consider the practicability of engaging test pilots in... Oh, and I cut off the top part of that one. Essentially, they just want them to know how to do the 737... How to do the thing. ...training. They recommend that together with the equipment manufacturer, consider the practicability of replacing the artificial voice warning. I brought this one up because it's really curious. Bank angle by a similar phrase, which would indicate the direction of bank. Okay, listen, Linda. This was recommended to Boeing. Listen, Linda. You should be able to look at the attitude indicator and And figure figure out out which way you're going. This is more of a problem with training the pilots on what they're supposed to be looking at on that attitude indicator than it is... On Boeing? On Boeing. To tell them where they're banking? Right. Bank angle is a very quick way of just saying, put your eyes on the attitude indicator and pay attention so that you you realize you're overbanking. Just come back. That's simple as that. So they never changed that. Boeing never changed that because it's just ridiculous. And finally, they recommend having their teachers and training programs. This is to Medic Limited, the English company. They recommend having their teachers and training programs approved and licensed for teaching general and technical English for flight and maintenance personnel who fly or maintain Western-made aircraft. Get them certified and teach them what to teach since they're being contracted by this company. Well, this was all pretty much a moot point anyways since Aeroflot Nord eventually became... Nordavia. Nordavia and then became Smartavia, a whole nother company. So we are two companies on. It still exists, but it is now a very different company. Hopefully with better regulations. and Well, be it that Russia also did adapt a lot of different Western style regulations after this, as well as training. And they updated training. This became quite a bit moot point. Things changed a lot. They really did. A lot of focus for a little while was put on to Russia after this accident as well as a series of other things that have happened in the past and because of that because of that like hyper focus from the outside world on their airlines they really wanted to redeem themselves in being a reasonably safe part of the world to fly mm-hmm. so they really did adapt to having a lot more western style aircraft in their fleets and they prioritized safely training crews for that and they prioritized just making sure that their Reputation as an airline and as a country and as companies were good. So they were pretty willing to actually adapt to most of these changes, which is a good thing. So you got to be able to adapt. Right. That goes for any airline, not just Russian airlines, but things change. Yep. Stuff changes, airplanes change, regulations change. You got to be able to adapt. Well, and. The ICAO, which they point out quite a few times in the recommendations and the findings, but I don't really talk about this. They just weren't following the ICAO's recommendations for things. Yeah. uh, Let alone guidance and regulations. And because of that, a lot of this happened. But the ICAO and the IATA are both there as the standardization, basically, for the world, for safety. Mm -hmm. And if you choose to just ignore that, even though you're a participating state, it's just negligence. That's not how it works. It's just negligence, basically. 
So there you go. Negligence for money. That was Aeroflot Nord. Yep. Fly 821. Right. Thank you so much for listening. It's a long episode, but it was a good episode. It is, actually. This one was quite a lot. Definitely made you angry. I don't think it's as long as last week's, though. It's not. No. Uh, So a few things before we close out. As I said before, um, if you become a $20 patron or flight crew patron, you get a Zoom call once a month with us. There are two times usually on the day we choose. One, The first one is at noon mountain time. Our time. Yes. Yep. And then the other is at 7 p.m. mountain time. So the first one is ideal for those of you in Europe. That's usually when we have our European listeners come on. Yep. Our patrons. And then the later time is best for those of you down under. Yep. Or, and either time's good for those of you potentially in the States or in Canada. Yep, really, that's up to you. If you are in, basically, if you're in the Western Hemisphere, you can do either one, because that's pretty much how we timed it. And if you are in the, if basically, if you are east of us, then you should probably attend the first one unless you're crazy. And if you are west of us, you should probably attend the second one unless you are crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a possibility. I I don't judge. When you look up what times those are actually in your time zone, you'll probably figure out why. Yeah. (laughs) So. It works out well for us in the middle of the day, but. We acknowledge that we messed up this month. Okay, listen. It's okay. It's okay. I I felt so bad because I was supposed to do it this entire week and I was so overwhelmed with work. I get it. That I get home and my brain shuts off. Nope, I get that. And so we we will do it. Literally, we will talk about when to do it for next month and have it scheduled before September. So you have plenty of time to determine whether or not you can make it. Yeah. Because I realized it was a complete crap shoot this month. So... And I apologize because that was mostly on me because that's it's, my job. But. It's all right. We will, yeah, get better about it. And I mean this, again, a lot of things I think will improve once we have some help here. Yes. We need that fourth person of help, I think, because there's so much that goes into just literally the recording part of this for all of us that we just need the help outside of that. So... Thank you guys for listening, as always. If you want to check out everything else included with Patreon, the flight crew patrons get everything, and then it trickles down from there. So if you want to take a look at what's included with that, maybe potentially want to join, feel free to do so. It's available on our website. It's also available on Patreon. If you just look us up, we pop right up. And there's also no shame in joining for a month and then canceling. We don't judge. Or the lowest level you can have is a $2 patron. Don't feel bad if that's all you can do. You can do less than that. You don't get any benefits. But if you want to support and you're like, I can only give a dollar a month, you can go ahead and do that if you really wanted to. We appreciate anything you give us. We really do. It helps us enormously. Way more than I think you guys actually realize. We (laughs) really want to be able to also pay our new help (laughs) since they will be doing a lot of our outside logistics. As much as they will let us. They've already rejected it. Right. So... But on top of that, I mean, we're going to do it. We just want to be able to pay them reasonably. I mean, it's not its not like they're going to be doing a full-time job's worth of work. Oh, God, no. We don't do a full-time job's of work. <laughs> because we can't. But they are going to be doing enough that it's like, okay, we really want them to, to get paid get for Get compensated this. for their time. So at this point, your contribution to that is helping us sustain this operation by helping, like, getting us literally help 
<laughs> yes. from another person, from so a fourth person. So we can person. continue to give you stuff every week of every the month, quality every, that, we, yeah, yes. that we do. We so. want to uphold the quality even though we are extremely busy. Yeah. So that being said, we're going to post episode now. Again, thank you so much for listening. We hope you have a safe and healthy week, and we will catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by The Lovely Page. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.